Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast. I'm Paul Doran, and in 2011, Padraig Otuma and I started 10 by 9 in the Black Box in Belfast. 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. And we love it. We're staying on Zoom for now, and you can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us at our website, 10by9.com. We have three stories for you on this podcast from three amazing women. They were all taking part in our September event when the theme was nerves. Here's first-timer Sinead Gary from Cork, but I'll let Padraig make the introduction. Sinead um, is my oldest friend in the entire world. We have known each other since we were eight years old. Um, we both grew up in the same village, and she is a magnificence of a human being. So, hello, Sinead, and I'm looking forward to hearing your story. And you're not allowed to tell any secrets. Right. My partner and I have recently taken the plunge and purchased a trailer tent. As a middle-aged lesbian, it always pains me when I evidence myself to be a stereotype. But it genuinely seemed to be the ideal solution to the extortionate cost of accommodation in the UK. I think what finally pushed us over the edge was the realization that without any exaggeration, the cost of a small fully equipped cottage in the south of France for a month was roughly equivalent to the cost of a long weekend in a shepherd's hut in the Lake District. When we were discussing how to work the logistics of moving one household containing two home offices and two dogs to the south of France for a month, the subject of trailers came up. Do you mean trailer tents, I asked. What's a trailer tent, she replied. Anyway, long story short, four weeks later, we own one and a nice new car to tow it. The thing is, I'm not sure she liked camping. The other thing is, I still have a certain amount of camping trauma that I haven't quite worked through myself. Cast yourselves back in time to late July 2000. There was a hot spell in Ireland that baked the ground hard for a couple of weeks. My late father has two sisters, Maura and Dinah. Maura is a missionary nun, and she's currently in charge of a home for clapped out nuns in Dublin. Dinah, spinster of this parish, is a handful of years younger. In 2000, they were in their late 50s or early 60s. Maura, the nun, had recently been repatriated from Texas for health reasons. She had a host of health issues, one of which is arthritis. It was Maura's bright idea to go camping. She brought the tent home with her from Texas with the intention of taking Dinah and my two small cousins camping somewhere in Ireland. It's worth pointing out that Dinah has some health issues of her own, including severe osteoporosis that causes her some pain. Between the osteoporosis and the arthritis, the two ants have significant problems bending down and when they get there, they can't get back up again. So far, so good. The two small cousins, Laura and Shane, were eight at the time. Not a one of them had ever been camping before. I went along for mostly humanitarian reasons. I'd been involved in scouting and guiding myself since my childhood. We made a packing list. They had air beds and a pump, sheets and duvets, a massive gas cylinder. I had a carry mat, a sleeping bag, a rucksack packed with sensible clothes that dry quickly and pack small. We set off from my parents' house in Cork in the two cars, each containing one aunt, one child, and a pile of stuff. The rain started falling onto the baked ground about four minutes after we pulled out of the drive. After two hours of driving through the unrelenting rain, we pulled up to a campsite in Sheep's Head, a peninsula to the southwest of Bantry in West Cork, and a truly beautiful place if you could see any of it. 
we could not. The ants found our pitch and we started to get set up. It was a good pitch, beside the hedge for shelter, under a tall beech tree, within sight of the toilet block and utility area, and not too close to anyone else. We had loud conversations about who would sleep where and whose job it was to blow up what. We pitched the tent, blew up our beds and set the beds up. I think we had two singles and a double, as well as my sleeping place, which looked monastic in its simplicity, beside the air beds piled with sheets, pillows and duvets. I enrolled my carry mat and sleeping bag and carefully placed my book and torch beside it. I can't sleep unless I read even a little bit. I left the rest of my gear in Maura's car and got down to the business of food. I'd remembered from my scouting days a diagram of a camping kitchen I'd seen in a book and never had the chance to use. I selected from the hedge behind us four long straight sticks and cut them with a Swiss army knife I've had since I was 21 and which never leaves my pocket. In true Richard O'Leary fashion, this is the actual Swiss army knife. I sharpened the sticks and drove them several inches into the ground in a rectangle to make the uprights. I selected two sets of longer sticks and two sets of shorter sticks and lashed them horizontally to the long sticks to support them using some scouting knots I have long since forgotten. Between the rectangular frames, I wound twine around the horizontal sticks to make a rough shelf. Pausing for a short while to admire my handiwork and to ensure the young cousins were suitably impressed by my cleverness, I then, this was not in the scouting book, took a roll of bin bags and covered the kitchen on top and on three sides to keep the bloody rain out. When this was complete, we took some of the tinned food, including many tins of spam, out of the cars and placed it and the cooking utensils in the kitchen beside which we made a fire and set up the gas stove. The aunts and I set about making the dinner while the two small cousins amused themselves by jumping around in the tent. I can't remember what we had for tea that night, but I do remember the conflicting sensations of the warmth and conviviality of the fire and the rain dripping unpleasantly down the back of my neck under my waterproof. We had a good night's crack. The two aunts are very entertaining and we were all in a good humor when it came time for bed. It was just about fully dark. I went to get my toothbrush and toothpaste from my backpack, which was in Maura's car, only to find that the bloody nun had locked the bloody keys into the bloody car and all the stuff in it. No matter, I said. We'll deal with it in the morning, we said. It won't kill us not to brush our teeth this one time or to sleep in our clothes. So we piled into the tent to discover that the two small cousins had knocked the bung out of one of the airbeds while they were gallivanting around in the tent. Guess where the pump was? Locked in the bloody car. Oh well, we said. Nothing to be done about it now, we said. Small cousin Laura was the one who drew the, the short straw and slept on the flat mattress with some additional bedding being stuffed underneath her to make it a bit more comfy. In defiance of the osteoporosis and the arthritis, the two aunts managed eventually to get themselves into a prone position and one by one, they all dropped off to sleep as I read by torchlight. I mentioned that Maura has a host of health problems, as well as arthritis and malaria. She's also had surgery to repair a congenital hole in her skull that resulted in a part of her nasal bone being removed, which is a trait that results in chronic, and I mean chronic, snoring. It's not a great noise to fall asleep to, but on the plus side, it does keep the wild animals away. Engrossed as I was in my book, I started to feel the cold a bit, especially around my feet. I shuffled around a bit to try and warm them up, and as I did, it came to my attention that my feet were cold because they were wet. 
as was the whole arse end of my sleeping bag. I sat up and looked around. The tent was on a slight slant. To be fair, I think the whole of West Cork is, there's not a level field for about 100 miles in any direction. And the bottom end of the tent, where the door was, was under a good three inches of water. I said, hi lads, I'm wet. The aunts and one small cousin woke up. The other small cousin, incidentally, he slept through the entire night. It transpired that the ground sheet of the tent that had been purchased in Texas was not in fact waterproof. I don't suppose it's quite such an issue in Texas. I don't suppose they go camping on bog holes in the pissing it down rain in Texas. A loud conversation ensued. It was decided that the small cousin that was awake would go and sleep in Dinah's car with Dinah, while Maura endeavoured to float above the water on the inflated airbed, and I built up the collapsed airbed around me like a dam to try and keep the water out. When finally everyone was sorted out and ready to sleep again, and Maura and I were the only ones awake in the tent, I mentioned to Maura that I could murder a cup of tea. She helpfully pointed out that the tea bags were locked in the car. Oh, how we laughed. The following morning, Maura shared with me the secret of how to break into her car. Remember, Maura's the nun. On the old hatchback, some of them had the rear quarter window that opened out, and apparently these are not too secure. This was clearly not her first rodeo. Under her expert tutelage, I was able to finagle this open. After some failed attempts involving a coat hanger loaned by the campsite manager, I used the Swiss army knife to cut a long straight stick and tied a loop of twine to it. I maneuvered my then quite skinny arm through this small window and with much patience and encouragement from the rabble managed to get the loop over the pull switch that opened the boot. With an athleticism that is many years in my past I dived full on hands over the head Tom Daly style dived through the open hatchback into the car from where I was able to liberate the keys the air pump and most importantly the tea bags from their prison of the night before. Before that day was out, I also learned how to manipulate the owner of an extremely busy laundrette into pushing us ahead of the queue to dry out our bedding. The trick was to use the small cousins, dejected, damp and chilled little faces. At the first available opportunity, we purchased a waterproof ground sheet and we continued to camp and eat spam for the intended four days. It did not stop raining once. We went fishing, which I usually love, and we caught not a damn thing. We went to the Gugon Barra, where it was too wet to go walking in the woods, but where we could at least take shelter in the pretty little oratory. And I know, Podrick, you know that one very well, because I think your sister Anya got married there. Yeah. We had our picnics in the car because it was too wet to get out. Thankfully, there was at least tea and flasks to be had. But the thing that really floored me was at the end of the four sodden, spam-filled, rain-soaked days, they all looked at each other and said, I kid you not, that was fun. Let's do it again next year. The joy of the outdoors that filled my scouting days has ebbed away to be replaced by a joy and comfort. The idea that spending four days in the pissing rain would be totally worth it just for the anecdote no longer enthuses me. And so I was pretty trepidatious when it came to having another go at the old camping. My partner and I drove from Bradford to Stockport, handed over a vast sum of money, attached an old trailer tent to a new car and headed off into the great unknown. Lads, my nerves. 
Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Sinead. Magnificent. Um, I do happen to know both of those aunties <laughs> and I have many memories. I believe I made a very suggestive comment once to your nun auntie and she was totally up for it. She might have even returned to me with a suggestive comment. You've made a, a, a habit of flirting with, I think, all of my aunts. Thanks so much, Sinead. The stories you must have about Podrig. We all look forward to hearing them. If you want to keep up with all things 10 by 9 wherever you are in the world, follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Also, we have a YouTube channel, which features all our recent Zoom stories, including today's. So go check them out. And if you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website and get in touch with us. Next up, we're going to Baltimore, Maryland and the fantastic Connie Phipps. On one of the otherwise indistinguishable work from home days this month, I sat transfixed by an image on my computer of a 13 year old boy in a hospital bed, tubes and bandages all over and around him, about as effectively neutralized as one can be while still alive. The article that accompanied the picture said that he was autistic, lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, and had been shot multiple times by the police whom his mother had called for help. He had a behavioral outburst because his mom went to work that day for the first time in a year, and he'd reacted to the change in his routine. She needed assistance in getting him safely to a hospital. He did not have a weapon and was shot as he ran away from the officers while they told him to lie down. I read mom's anguished statements and looked at the picture again unable to pull away and concentrate on my work. My blood pressure rose and the heavyweight boxer in my nervous system jumped right into the ring, daring a non-existent crowd to come in for a round or two. I posted the article everywhere, called a secretary of the mayor of Salt Lake City and told her the country was watching, donated to the boy's family, then went back online again to ask everyone I know to do the same. This is not because I am some great activist against our scourge of police brutality, although I wish I were. Truth be told, I was in the ring because at that moment, in my mind, I was the boy's mother. Three years ago, my then 14-year-old son and I drove my daughter to choir class in the quiet county seat of our suburban area outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Nick has autism and epilepsy. It was a mild fall evening. I pulled over to the curb to let my daughter out, and as I was about to pull off, I heard the whoop whoop of a police car right behind me, and I stopped. I explained to my son that this must be a traffic stop, that it would be okay, the officer would just give us a ticket for something, and then we would go home. I asked him to be quiet and still. At first, it is just one officer, which is unusual, and she is in her 20s, blonde, stereotypically pretty. She looks like a rookie in a TV cop show, the one whom none of the force accepts until she shoots a bad guy. If that's what this officer is going through, she is definitely overcompensating. I lower my window to greet her and she yells at me that my license plate tags have expired. Then she yells at me about the way I pulled over and the way I'm parked. She yells like we are on opposite ends of a football field. 
During the tirade, a second police car pulls behind hers and a male officer comes to stand outside the passenger side of the car. Many people with autism have difficulty tolerating loud noise, never mind tense and enclosing social situations. I can feel Nick's anxiety rising and I try to reassure him under my breath, but as sure as if we were one being, I know what's going to happen next. Nick hits his limit and opens his car door, suddenly jumping out. Both officers start shouting for him to get back in the car. I begin screaming that he is autistic and does not understand them. Over my pleas, the rookie orders me out of the car and pushes me up against it, face down, arms and legs splayed apart. I can't really see Nick, but I'm aware from their shouting that he is pacing around the car, including in the street and ignoring their orders. By this time, I am wailing, begging them not to hurt him because he's autistic and doesn't understand them, over and over, a mantra of hysterical fear. I become dimly aware that a third police car has arrived, and I arrived, and I howl against what I am sure is coming when they will together wrestle Nick down to the ground or zap him with a teaser. Instead, there is sudden quiet. And only then do I realize that Nick is standing behind me, patting me on the shoulder. A calming male voice that I can't see says gently, you're taking good care of your mom. He's a middle-aged supervisor and he has sent the rookie and her partner to their vehicles. He asks Nick and I to get back in our car, which somehow, under the spell of his magical serenity, happens easily. We all sit there for what seems like a very long time. Although the danger is mostly past, my nervous system feels those parked police cars as if they were driving up and down my spinal cord, and I continue to weep uncontrollably. The rookie comes to my window and in the only tone of voice she seems to know, yells some continuation of the traffic stop into my ear and I bawl. I can't stop no matter what good it would do me. Frustrated, she goes to get the other two and they explain to me that I can no longer use the car and they will drive us home or call someone or what do I wanna do? I can only shake my head and sob. The rookie suggests to them that they call Child Protective Services to come get my son, and once he's gone, they can turn me out in the street. At that, the supervisor seems to give up on the younger officers, and he tells them to leave. Once they have driven off, we really are safe, but I'm aware enough to know that I will not be able to stabilize my nerves until out of the presence of any police, no matter how kind. Why can't I take charge of myself? Is it because of the violence in my marriage? Is it because I had another scare with the police over that matter? Nick is having seizures regularly, including one just two months before that lasted 20 minutes. Increasingly, an animal instinct is replacing my previously healthy sense of self-mastery without permission or contract. There are rivers pouring down my cheeks and we are stuck because this officer wants to make it right 
and I can't write myself until he goes away. I am finally able to communicate that Nick and I will go for a walk to calm down, and he agrees to the plan. He walks with us past the choir building. It occurs to me that none of the parents or staff who sit in the front lobby have been drawn out by the commotion, even though some know us. They left us to our shameful fate over lapsed tags. I feel a jangling ache inside for the nearby city where I grew up, where at the very least you could count on an audience of curious and commenting bystanders for any good drama. There would have been someone around in that city who would have declared it was a scary thing being a mother and it was all right to cry it out. Maybe someone would have called Nick a beautiful child of God. Here, we don't belong here. I hold Nick's hand and we head towards a nearby park, which involves crossing a busy road. The officer stops traffic going both ways so we can cross. And I'm reminded of a book I loved as a child called Make Way for Ducklings, in which a rotund and benevolent policeman stops traffic in downtown Boston to allow a proud mother duck and her babies to get safely to the pond in Boston Gardens. It is hard to know or measure what this man has saved us from, and his quiet decency is as idyllic and reassuring as that of a storybook character. He gave us back our humanity. But for some reason, I cannot speak to him or speak at all. I am only able to muster a nod of thanks. I'm afraid he will follow us to the park, but after helping us cross, he leaves, and we sit at a picnic table while I continue to cry. At this point, eons into the ordeal. Nick rationally insists that it is over now, Mommy, and I don't need to be sad anymore. My parental role has dissolved in an acid bath of panic. I shame wonder if his neurodiversity has protected him from fear or if he is just taking care of this infantilized woman I have become. I rest my face on the cool picnic table and slowly feel the panic start to drain out of my nervous system. My child has escaped unhurt but this release is not about a realization or thought process because those aren't really present yet. It's rather a physical sensation of coming back into myself, having myself return to me. I breathe as if recovering from a race and the tears slow down of their own accord. Thanks so much, Connie. It's great to hear you all came through it unscathed. Now the money part. As you know, 10 by 9 is always free and our September get-together is usually our annual fundraiser, which we've missed out on this year. But we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We are really thankful to everyone who has donated. Now, here's our third story, and it's from Gita Meaton, who joined us from her home in Glasgow. It was almost uh, 20 years after my first day at work that I discovered that my new boss had been almost as nervous as I was. The first Wednesday in August is the day a freshly hatched batch of new junior doctors arrives on the wards in the UK. And it's also the day that the hospitals brace themselves to protect their parents, parents, their patients um, from their inexperience. 
and it was my very first day of work as Dr. Meaton. The morning had been spent crying into the front of my husband's t-shirt saying, I'm scared, <laughs> they can't make me go. But unfortunately they could make me go because my job for the next six months was to take my place as the least confident, most ill-equipped member of the medical team. And the learning curve ahead of me was more like a cliff face. And I was a skin bag of nerves and adrenaline. So there I was day one with my freshly starched white coat pockets laden with the essential tools of the job, a drug formulary the size of a small Bible, the yellow Oxford handbook of clinical medicine and the pager, which was to become my new Lord and master. I had an overwhelming sense of dread, churning guts, an attention headache, um, all by 8.30 a.m. Come on, girl. Big breath, fake smile. I walked on to Ward 4. Uh, all eyes turned, and I was suddenly incredibly conscious of trying to walk like a normal human being. My boss, Dr. Brennan, was at the centre of a huddle of medical staff. He was tall with a cyclist frame, a neat beard, and wearing the doctor uniform of chinos and a smart white shirt with the sleeves rolled up, no coats for the senior staff. His eyes kind, he introduced me to the rest of my new team and I tried to file away their names and their roles for future, wondering who was going to be a friend, who was going to be an ally. They all seemed to have a calm confidence that I could only dream of. We junior doctors were so ill-equipped, so full of nerves and imposter syndrome, a bunch of 20-somethings freshly out of university and used to being high achievers, but all of a sudden, the very bottom of the hospital food chain. Those were the good old days, pre-European working time directive, so we were working 70 hours a week, sleeping one or two hours in 24, often under a desk, or if we could find a recently vacated patient bed. I hated almost every moment, drinking vodka in the morning after a night shift and fantasizing about how to crash the car in a way that would mean I was off sick, but wouldn't die. The kinder nurses treated us with patience and the nurse ratchet types were slightly more sadistic in their approach. There was one nurse who would take delight in sending us to review the elderly man with dementia who'd regressed to his former days as a bit of a Lothario and you'd have to be quick with a backwards leap to avoid his surprisingly grabby hands. I was once fast paged to the resuscitation area in A&E to review somebody called Amanda Hug and Kiss to be met with a burly male emergency room nurse saying, here I am, darling, Amanda Hug and Kiss, which was probably hilarious, but not at 2 a.m. I narrowly avoided killing an elderly patient by overprescribing morphine. A nurse asking gently, can I clarify the dose here, doctor, saved my skin that time, and more importantly, the patients. I pronounced deaths, so many dead bodies for a 22-year-old to see, each one someone's father or wife or child. And at the beginning, I'd cry with the relatives. But by the end, I was so numbed that they were just another task on the list. The dark humour of the doctor's mess would keep us going with endless coffees and biscuits in a scrappy room reminiscent of a youth hostel with brown and orange leatherette chairs pouring foam stuffing from their holes and a broken TV. 
Our downtime was constantly interrupted by the bleeps of our pagers, cannulas needing recited, admissions arriving or patients needing urgent review. And the most terrifying of all was the strident noise of the cardiac arrest page that the duty doctor carried. This one would scream the sight of the emergency at you. Cardiac arrest, ward eight, cardiac arrest, ward eight. You want to get to those calls quickly, but not be first on the scene, as that means you then have to run the arrest, which was something we juniors dreaded more than anything else. I remember one charming anaesthetic doctor yelling at us as we flew down the corridor, run faster, they're gonna be dead. Helpful. The trick was to arrive out of breath enough to look as though you'd made a decent effort, but not need resuscitation yourself and not be in charge of anything important. So when that pager went off, the doctor's mess would resound with a chorus designed to express solidarity and support. And it went a little something like this. Cardiac arrest, ward eight. Shite! I've no idea how that started. Probably with the rugby lads in the junior doctor team. But that battle cry of shite was strangely comforting. It just didn't look very good when the emergency bleep went off in the cafe. But I survived with some stories to tell and a little bit more self-belief. And almost all of my patients did as well. And through it all, Dr. Brennan was a constant source of calm. He seemed to know everything about everything and have a sixth sense about medical diagnoses. And time and time again, as we did our rounds, I'd feel safer when he was in charge. Like some kind of serene medical guru, he had limitless patience for the team he led. And if he picked up on my terror and overwhelming sense of inadequacy, he was kind enough never to reference it. I wanted to be him when I grew up, just maybe without the beard. So flashing forward to this April, when my daughter developed a cough and a high temperature, of course it was the COVID until proven otherwise. So I phoned in sick and contacted the helpline to arrange a test. A wee bit later on, we drove up to a gazebo around the back of a hospital where a fully equipped nurse in PPE stuck a swab through the car window, up her wee nose, and round her tonsils and, and we headed back home to await our fate. Well the phone rang the next day with a familiar voice at the other end. It was Dr Brennan, now retired from the NHS but drafted in um, to work with the public health team during the pandemic and he'd recognised my name from the olden days on the form and taken the call himself. So we reminisced for a few minutes about those late 90s days in the ward and realised at the time he was probably the same age I am now, a fairly new consultant leading a team which relied on him. I blurted out, I was so nervous the whole time I'd cry every day. I don't know why I felt the need to confess after all these years. Maybe it was just the surprise of hearing his voice or maybe it was the relief that Emily didn't have the COVID, but out it poured. We were no longer boss and very junior junior, just a couple of old colleagues catching up. I could hear the smile in his voice as he replied with an answer that was either incredibly reassuring or a tiny bit terrifying. Can I let you into a secret, he said. Me too. So 
it turns out that sometimes even our heroes are just trying to hide the nerves and act like they know what they're doing. Thanks very much, Gaila. That's fantastic. Um, it's always good to hear stories from you from across the water in Scotland. Um, I don't think I've told too many people this, but I used to want to be a doctor when I was younger and I didn't get into medicine. I mean, I, I'm much better writing poems about blood than I am imagining blood. So I think it's a it's a good thing for the world that I never got into medicine. But um, it took me a few years to figure out what I was going to do. And so I got a job as a cleaner in the operating theatre in one of the hospitals in Cork City. And I hated the job. I just despised it. It confirmed to me that I never would have been a good doctor or nurse or anything. And um, I um, one day was given a bag of, of human waste, bits and pieces that have been taken out from a body. And I was supposed to put it down the incinerator chute because the operating theatres were on top of the hospital. And there were two chutes. There was the incinerator chute and there was the laundry chute. <laughs> And yeah, I sent body bits down um, a laundry chute. <laughs> I don't think I've told anybody that. <laughs> 25 years ago that I did that. And um, yeah, I'm sure I gave some poor person working in the laundry in the basement the pride of their life. Um, yeah. And the awful thing was that I was such a good living person at the time. When I sent that down, I said, and I felt more guilty that I'd sworn than the fact that I'd sent human bits down the laundry chute. So there we are. Thanks so much, Gita. Great to hear it all worked out in the end. And one of the few positives from this period is that we've managed to hear from people who wouldn't normally be able to get to the black box. You can take part or just pop along to our Zoom events wherever you are in the world. And that is it from me for now. Check out the website, 10by9.com, and get in touch. We love hearing from you. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran, so you can blame me. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye.